Hello and welcome to Kobe's podcast. This episode is a discussion between me and Dr. Fatuma about birding and evolution. Those who've listened to my previous podcasts will know of Dr. Fatuma's excellent credentials as an evolutionary biologist, but he is also an avid bird watcher. In the following extract, you're going to hear about why nature isn't necessarily a great place to get your morals from, Alice in Wonderland, and Dr. Fatuma's new book. I hope you enjoy. It is a bit now. We've spoke a lot about evolutionary biology, but let's uh, let's talk about the book that you're writing. Can you give me a brief outline? Um, well, yeah, this is um, uh, well. Uh, so I've been I've been a series, I've been a bird watcher since I was uh, I don't know 11, 11 years old or something like that, and um, and certainly that was part of what led me into becoming interested in biology as a career. Um, and uh, obviously. Certain teachers had a lot to do with that, um, but you know, but being interested in animals since I was a kid, and the learn, then learning that even within the confines of New York City, where I grew up, even there you can see all sorts of different kinds of birds, uh, was one of the things that really hooked me uh, into becoming a biologist. And um, and so I've been on and off again throughout my life since then, been been actively uh, actively birding, and especially in recent years, and I've been going around the world on all sorts of birding tours and seeing you know many 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 fascinating birds you know, also a great opportunity to visit fascinating countries um, and um, and you know and now that I've retired I mean I do have other things going on you, you know that I wrote a textbook on evolution and there'll be a, there'll be another edition of that that I'm going to be starting up on pretty soon um, but I thought it would be fun to write a book um, about the, uh, about the evolutionary biology of birds aimed at my fellow birders and other people who like birds but are not trained in biology. Um, and thinking oh, there's so many interesting things about birds that you as, as a bird watcher um, might see and might wonder about um, that I can help to sort of explain or illuminate from, from my perspective. Um, and, um, uh, and, you know, and so, uh, well, one example is uh, I went to Bolivia on a birding tour last year and uh, saw more than 600 species. I think the total trip list, including birds that were only heard, was something like 690 species of birds in the course of four weeks. Okay. Compare that to the number of species of birds I could see in an entire year in New York State traveling around ranging from the from the ocean shore to the high the higher mountains of northern New York State where you have boreal forest um, in New York State if I'm lucky I'll see 330 species 330 species in a year so half the number that I could see in just a few weeks in Bolivia um, and you ask the question why are there so many more species in tropical regions than in high latitude regions you know um, and uh, so that's an example of the kind of question that I could help to, to answer. Um, people want to know what is, you know, what is a bird species? I mean, every, birders almost always keep lists and the number of recognized bird species keeps changing. People, you know, because taxonomists uh, start, you know, describing new species, they decide that what they thought was one species, they actually want to call it two species or more. This goes back to the different species concepts, you know, because they may apply a different species concept and recognize more species. And so one of the chapters is what we were talking about earlier, you know, what are species and how do they come about? And, uh, 
um, and that's something the Wattenbergers are interested in. Um, or, for example, you know, different kinds of behaviors on the part of birds. I talked about sexual selection and females preferring certain characteristics in, in, in males. And this has obviously been enormously important in the proliferation of all kinds of extraordinary and extraordinarily beautiful birds throughout the world. It's one of the reasons become birders. People become birders is because they look and they see all this beauty around them and they say, wow, the, you know, these ducks, just look at a male mallard duck. It's really a thing of beauty, you know? Um, and uh, so, so trying to explain to people what sexual selection is and how that may be responsible for so much of this beautiful diversity that we see. So, um, so basically that's what the book is about is, you know, is sort of uh, various aspects of birds um, seen through the lens of, 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 of an evolutionary biologist, through the binoculars of an evolutionary biologist. That sounds like a really interesting read. I hope so. <laughs> I, you know, I've I've had a few friends uh, read read drafts of some of the chapters, and and by and large, by and large, I've gotten very encouraging uh, feedback from them. So, so I'm I'm hoping that it uh, that it will that it will appeal. Ah, on the topic of birds, I was really surprised recently to read the extent to which birds had diversified before the KT extinction event. So before the the uh, the space object destroyed. Uh, made most of the dinosaur species extinct um if you as an avid bird watcher could go back to 66 or 67 million years ago how recognizable would bird life be to you um well let me first first say that that um you know i'm not a paleontologist and so what little i know is what i've just what i've been reading part partly in preparation for this book and um, and what I learned is that that particular uh, part of, of, uh, of geological time turns out to have to have a very poor fossil record for birds. You know, so in fact, it's earlier than that, the fossil record is better even. Um, but so it's it's not so great in the very late Cretaceous, just before the asteroid hit, where the, the, the space object um, hit. Um, nevertheless, uh, what we do know is that there were lots of things that became extinct, as you can imagine, during that, that great extinction event. Um, uh, most of the fossils that we have for, of extinct things from then are of aquatic birds of various kinds. Um, so one of, one of them was, was Hesperornis, which I believe was flightless, and it looked sort of like a loon that couldn't fly. But it, what was interesting about it was that it still had teeth. Um, so, of course, dinosaurs had teeth, or they, well, the, the standard dinosaurs had teeth. Birds today do not have teeth, so birds have lost teeth um, that their ancestors had. But in the fossil record, uh, you do at that, at that time have some birds with feathers and everything else that, um, uh, that were good birds, except for the fact that they still had teeth. Um, the, uh, there would have been the ancestors of what we call the ratites. So these are the big giant birds like ostriches and cassowaries and emus. Um, those particular forms didn't exist then, but their ancestors did. And some of the, what those ancestors looked like, we're not totally sure. Um, and, uh, and there were also the ancestors of ducks and other waterfowl. There were the ancestors of uh, chickens and other game birds. Um, and there were the ancestors of many of the major groups, the orders of birds um, that, that we recognize today, like you know, shorebirds and, and kingfishers and various other groups like this. Now, most of those we don't have fossils from, 
but we know that their ancestors existed because we have what's called the DNA molecular clock. And so, and we, if you know, in, in other words, DNA sequences become more and more different over time uh, in two lineages that have a better, you know, have come from a common ancestor. And we know more or less how fast the DNA changes. Um, and so on that basis, we can compare two birds and say, well, how far back in time was their common ancestor? And so if you compare the different orders of birds, let's say sandpipers versus loons versus penguins, um, what you'll find is that the DNA differences are such that their common ancestors existed before the KT extinction, okay? But many, many, many of them basically all diversified at a, they, they all kind of split up around the same time, just before and just after the KT extinction. So there would have been plenty of birds, but we don't know what most of them looked like. We just know that they, many of them were uh, related to the ancestors of various of today's birds, but we don't know really quite what they looked like. Wow, so I, I had imagined that a few surviving birds diversified after the KT extinction to fill the niches left by extinct pterosaurs? Well, the, well no, that, what you're saying is, is absolutely true and, and, not, not, um, and not incompatible with what I just said, <laughs> okay? Um, because it, it, if, if, it, you know, if, you look at, if you look at the phylogenetic tree of today's birds, as I say, you have all these lineages, these different orders, you know, you've got the penguins, you've got the albatrosses, you have the kingfishers, you know, you have, you have the, the, uh, the wading birds and so forth, and all of them trace back ancestors to around that time, but you could account for all of those different lineages, you know, with just 20 to 25 bird species, right? Now, there must have been more than that because the great majority would have gone extinct. But what I'm saying is there was, a, there, was a pro, there was quite a proliferation of different birds then, including things that have left no descendants whatever. We know that just from the few fossils that, that, that there are, things like the, the, the Hesperornis with teeth. Um, but, um, but how, you know, just how great a proliferation there was, there's just, there's just not enough fossil evidence on that. We know that if you go back before then, if you go back to say 80 million years ago and before that, that you know that there are plenty of uh, there are plenty of, of, of bird groups that are that were you know just different and entirely different from any of the birds we have today, and that have like you know, just became totally extinct. But they became extinct well before the, the the ones that many of the ones that we know about they became extinct well before the KT extinction event. Wow. That's really surprising to me. Now, one of one of the, one of the points that, that's interesting is the um, uh, that the suggestion that most of the lineages that survived through that event and then started prolifer proliferating again after the the big extinction event, they started proliferating and ultimately gave rise to today's birds. You know, it's it's been suggested that you know, that most of them were water birds that survived that extinction event. And probably, probably there certainly were forests, and those forests, you know, must have had must have had flying birds. They might almost certainly had all kinds of birds, um, because we know that that there were feathered flying birds before them. But it's suggested that the KT event basically eliminated forests, you know, just sort of burned them up, and uh, and probably all of the pretty much all of the forest birds probably became extinct. So who knows how many there were? Most of them wouldn't have left any fossils. 
Wow. So, so this question has just come to me. So if you're not comfortable with, the, with answering it, don't worry. But um, what made birds special? If all of the non-avian dinosaurs went extinct, and you're saying that, you know, many species of birds survived, why? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so um, uh, well, of course, it, it, now, now you're getting into an area where I know much less than I would like to, which is how diverse were non-avian dinosaurs when that asteroid hit, okay? My, imp my impression is that they had already been dwindling in diversity for quite a long time before the big KT event. That yes, there certainly were some that were still around. We know that Tyrannosaurus and Triceratops and a number of others were still around when, you know, when the KT event happened, but they were the last of the dinosaurs. It's not like you had this enormous, it's not like all the dinosaurs that you've, that you've ever seen in museums or seen pictures of. It's not like they were all present and, you know, and basically then all went, died in one big, one big you know, event. Um, so they apparently had already been dwindling for, for quite a while beforehand, and I don't know why. Um, uh, so um, so it's, it's, it's not like there was somehow a magical difference between being a non-avian dinosaur and being, a, being, a, being a, yeah, an avian dinosaur. Um, but I, no, but that's, 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 it, I think you're asking a very good question, and what you hear me doing is kind of groping for the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll have to get on Google for that one then. It's that's that's really interesting. Right. So, um, moving on to what was one of my favourite concepts that I learned in evolutionary biology: the Red Queen hypothesis. Um, can you give me a particularly interesting example from the world of birds? Well, first of all, we have to tell people what that refers to. And yes. so, this, so this refers to the character in in in. It, you know, by, by the way, if, uh, and I speak to anyone who's listening, if you have not re read Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass as an adult, I strongly recommend, I beg you to go back and read them. They can't be fully appreciated by children. They are just <laughs> brilliant, brilliant books, brilliant books. Remember, you know, he was a mathematician and the mathematical logic was, was, was his field. And there's so much in those books that's so wild and crazy and really, really interesting. Um, anyway, one of the characters in Through the Looking Glass is the Red Queen. And, um, and so she is famous for telling, for telling Alice to run faster because you'll fall behind. And, it, and, and Alice says, well, it doesn't really look, I'm running as fast as I can. It doesn't really look like we're going anywhere. And uh, the Red Queen says, well, in, the, you know, in, 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 in my kingdom, you have to run as fast as you can just to stay in the, safe, in the same place. Um, so that so what is that so this this carrot this concept was was uh, the, the name then was it was was from that was taken by by a guy named Lee Van Bellen a paleontologist at the University of Chicago um, and he applied it to the idea that a species that doesn't continually evolve is likely to fall behind and become extinct because it must contend 
with other species that are evolving and those species are evolving to become better predators or more effective parasites or diseases or they're going they're being better at competing for food and if you don't keep up with them by evolving defenses against predators or evolving defenses against parasites or ways to be a better competitor then you're going to fall behind and you're going to become extinct um, so that's the whole idea of the red queen hypothesis is basically continuing continuing ongoing evolution kind of like the arms race between you know the, the, between the, the, the United States and the Soviet Union uh, that for, you know as soon as one as soon as one has an improvement in missile development then the other one has to match it you know, or else or else or else you're finished um, and um, the uh, the best example that I know of in birds has to do with brood parasites and their hosts so brood parasites well in England you are for you, you have the cuckoo that is the, the brood parasite par excellence. And some absolutely wonderful work on the cuckoo and its hosts that was initiated by Nick Davies at Cambridge. Um, this is some of the most famous work in evolutionary biology. It's absolutely beautiful. So it's been known for a long time. So, so cuckoos lay, lay an egg in the nest of a smaller bird. The, the birds, um, they, the birds, once it hatches, the birds will feed the chick just as if it were one of one of their own. They don't seem to be able to discriminate between a cuckoo chick and, and their own young, but they can discriminate eggs. And if they see an egg that is different from the eggs that they already laid, they will uh, typically toss it out of the nest. Okay. So cuckoos have evolved a strategy of producing eggs that mimic, that look like the eggs of their hosts. There are different genotypes of cuckoos, um, each of which lays a different kind of egg with different color and somewhat different markings on the egg, which matches a particular species of bird that that genotype of cuckoo typically parasitizes. Um, and so, um, so you have um, you have one that parasitizes the reed warbler. You have another that parasitizes the great reed warbler. You have another that parasitizes. I'm trying to remember what, what they all are, but, but 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 I can't off the top of my head. Um, there's one that parasitizes the dunnock, um, but that's a very odd one because the dunnock apparently doesn't toss the eggs out. Um, anyway, the um, so so here you have these birds now faced with the fact that there could be a mimic egg in their nest which is, and, and I should say, of course, that the young cuckoo typically throws out the eggs or the nestlings of the, of the proper host. So it becomes the only one left in the nest and monopolizes the parent's feeding. And obviously this is not good for the, for the host species, for the, those host individuals. So what do you do if, you know, what, 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 <laughs> what, what can natural selection come up with? Um, and the answer is, um, that the host species, that individuals of a, of a host species, which lay a mutant kind of egg that doesn't look quite like the cuckoo egg that is normally deposited in the eggs of this host, let's say the reed warbler, okay? It's faced with cuckoo eggs that look like reed warbler eggs. And so if you lay a mutant egg, which is distinguishable, different from your old from, from the previous uh, egg pattern and distinguishable from the cuckoo egg, then you know it's your own. And that one you can be sure to incubate and throw out anything that doesn't look like it. And so, you, what, and so what you have is selection for an altered egg color or, or pattern of markings on the egg. 
so that it no longer is mimicked by the by the current cuckoo egg. Um, and this has been shown in in a South American uh, bird called Aprinia that's parasitized not by not by cuckoos but by something called the cuckoo finch. Um, uh, by 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 Gail Spottiswood, I believe is her name, and I don't remember which university she's at. It might be Cambridge. I'm not sure. Um, but you know, but she's carried on a lot of this beautiful work of the kind that McDavies initiated. Um, and so you have here this the potential for a for a uh, or a red queen process in which the you know you have the host that has a certain kind of egg. The cuckoo evolves to match it. The host evolves away, and eventually, presumably, the cuckoo will evolve to match that one, and it should be ongoing. Um, it may well be that someone that that uh, it may well be that the the you know, that some of the host species conceivably could win the race and get basically get rid of cuckoos altogether. And there are a couple of birds that have been suggested that you know they, they look like good candidates to be hosts and they ought to be parasitized, but the cuckoos don't really parasitize them. And maybe they just the cuckoo just fell behind in the race and couldn't keep up. Wow. That's really interesting. <laughs> so the um, yeah, people think of the the the, the best examples of, of 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 the red queen effect are thought to be generally hosts and parasites, and, and each of them sort of evolving ways of foiling the other. Ah, so staying on the topic of birds, um, can you give me an example of a bird with some characteristics that might seem harmful or disadvantage or disadvantageous, but are actually uh, beneficial for the bird and make them fitter. Yeah, they, they're, they're, yeah, there are, there are, there are a couple of things like that. You know, where you say, how on this really, how on earth did this evolve? This doesn't sort of seem to make sense. And um, and I think the best examples have to do with with uh, conflict within the family. So uh, you know, not um, um, you know, not. All families are unhappy, each in their own way, right? And um, uh, and and um, uh, let me give you a couple of examples that I think are curious that basically have to do with the fact that um, of sibling rivalry, shall we call it, um, that siblings compete with one another for parental attention, and in the case of birds, that means they compete for the food that the parent may give them. Okay, and there may or may not be enough. Okay, so um, so there is competition, and the result of that is natural selection will favor any characteristics of a young bird that would make it more likely to receive food from the parent. Okay? Um, for instance, uh, nestling birds often have bright yellow mouth linings. You know, if you look at look at a begging bird, it opens its mouth. A little nestling opens its mouth really widely, and the inside of the mouth is bright yellow, typically, uh, or orange. Um, and and actually, there's one case in which I think it was with tits. I'm not sure, but um, that uh, someone dyed dyed the the mouth lining of some nestlings so that it was brighter orange, almost red. And that turned out to be really appealing to the parents. They were really responsive to that, and they fed those chicks more than the than the normal chicks, the chicks that had the normal color. Um, uh, in the same way, coots, at least the American coot, the uh, the chicks are black, and they have these long, stringy orange plumes on the head. Um, and it turns out that those orange plumes are, you know, a signal to parents that the, that they they elicit from you know. 
feeding, you know, feeding behavior from the from from, from the parents. And uh, a guy named Bruce Lyons uh, you know, um, did the simple experiment. What happens if you cut off the orange plumes on some chicks? And you know, and, and it turns out, well, yeah, at that point they lose in competition to their siblings, who who then get all the food. Um, so. Um, so, um, so I think it's it's uh, you know really you know important to recognize that you can have you know things. That it's not all one happy family, but the, there is some you know serious some serious evolution happens as a result of members of the same family competing against one another. And this you know so you can say well you know if you were if you you know if you were a chick and you wanted to get an advantage over your over your brothers and sisters and get more food than them you know what could you do well maybe you could have longer orange plumes or another way is you could just kill them right just kill them so you know suicide um uh like cain and abel and um and that ha that is the normal behavior in a lot of species of hawks and eagles and herons and egrets in which typically the female will lay, let's say, two or three eggs, and they hatch, and even you know, just by chance, one will one chick will get to be bigger than the others, and that chick will often then kill its smaller nestmates. And this happens right in front of the parents. The parents just watch this happening, they don't do anything about it. And you look at that and say, why on earth? Is that happening? That is horrifying. Yeah. By the way, I think it's a lovely example of why you should never even think of taking nature as a model for ethical human behavior. You know, do, do not do not look to natural examples to say to say what's ethical or what's right or what's moral or what's immoral. Okay, and. Uh, um, <laughs> You know, I mean, so I mean, I grew up in a in a period in in which there was you know even more even more discrimination against gay people and lesbians than there is today, and you know, and there was always this thing about well, it's unnatural, you know, homosexual behavior is unnatural, so it must be wrong. And my answer to that is, what's natural is not necessarily right, you know, it's not necessarily right for humans, right? So thank goodness, thank goodness, the. Uh, the prejudice against uh, gay men and, and lesbians and transsexuals has, has, has abated somewhat, but by no means enough. Anyway, back to the the um, the, the point at issue is uh, so here we have you know and you can see you know photos of you know egrets just you know standing there watching one chick kill the other one. Um, so why you know, so why do the parents allow it? Well, basically because feeding a chick in many cases is a lot of hard work and bringing enough food to be able to raise two healthy chicks that are likely to survive once they leave the nest, once they leave the parents, is may not be possible. Okay. In fact, very often it's the case that basically the parent can only bring in enough food to, pr to produce one, one healthy offspring. Okay. The extreme of this is in albatrosses. You know, wandering albatross, it takes almost a year to raise a, an albatross chick to the point where it's big enough that it can fend for itself and, and live on its own. And, and an albatross couldn't possibly raise two chicks. It couldn't, it couldn't possibly. Um, no way it could bring enough food. So, um, so, the, so it's basically advantageous to the parent's fitness to have one chick that's more or less guaranteed of survival instead of two chicks that are kind of not quite as strong and healthy enough in which there's a chance that there may be, that maybe, that maybe neither of them would survive. 
Um, and so, it, you know, and so it really is ad adaptive to allow sibling rivalry to the point of one sibling killing killing the other uh, with the others. And that, of course, then raises the question: Well, why do they lay two eggs in the first place instead of just one egg and raise one healthy chick and be done with it? And the usual answer to that is insurance. You know, what if that one egg gets eaten by a predator or just in one way or another has an accident? At least there may be the possibility of a second egg to fall back, fall back position. Um, so, um, so I think, you know, so there are cases like that, that uh, in birds and of course other organisms as well, there are all kinds of, of behaviors and life histories that make you really puzzle at first as to what, why would that be advantageous? Why would that have evolved? And then you start thinking out the logic of natural selection and it makes sense. Competition between siblings must be especially complicated to study from an evolutionary point of view, as all the genes come from the parents. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what you are. So if in, with competition between siblings, for example, with the length of uh, a yellow feather, if the siblings have got all of their genes from the same parents, it must be difficult, more difficult for one to get ahead of the other. I see what you're saying. Yeah, but they're not genetically identical. Okay. Um, and uh, and even, even if they were genetically identical, um, there could still be, you could still have selection for a gene that's carried by all the chicks that basically says, you know, if you're big enough uh, or if you can grow longer orange plumes, um, then do so, <laughs> you know. Um, okay, and so in other words, the, there is such a thing as, so, so we have phenotypic plasticity, right? So this is the, case, the, the situation where a particular set of genes could result in any of several different phenotypes, different different appearances, different you know, you know, larger or smaller or whatever, depending on the environment. Let's say on how much food there is coming in. Okay, and so there can be selection for particular genotypes that are that sort of condition the particular development of a phenotype on the environment, and um, and so what that would mean is. Even if all the coot chicks have the same genotype, if you have different genotypes of coots, so some of them are having offspring that will tend to have longer orange plumes, and other coots have offspring with um, with shorter orange plumes, um, then um, then the suggestion is that whatever the mutation was that first made plumes longer, that it would have had an advantage over some of the siblings in that same brood because they all wouldn't inherit that same mutation. But I see what you're getting at. You are, you're, you're quite right that this is a situation in which you have to have genetic variation within the family. Um, you're quite right um, uh, in order for natural selection to work. Yeah. Oh, so. Of course there is, you know, you, I and my brother don't have exactly the same genotype. You know, we have different hair color and eye color and all kinds of things, right? So. So, you know, you could imagine a situation where for some reason or another, it's, ad, you know, it's advantageous for parents to favor the offspring that has brown eyes, you know, or whatever. Oh. So, let's, let's end on a high note after we accidentally got into quite a, uh, a grim area there. <laughs> <laughs> Can you uh, share a story from bird watching that is particularly uplifting or something fantastic you have seen? Oh my God! There's so oh, so many, you know. I, 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 
couple of these into the book, and I, I suppose, like many, like many birders, I could write, I could write a book with all these stories. <laughs> and so I'll tell you, if you allow me, I'll, I'll give you just a couple. One is, I spent, I spent the better part of a year in, in Australia on sabbatical leave, and of course, I was trying to see as many Australian birds and mammals and trees and everything else as possible because Australia is like another world biologically. Um, just everything there is so different. It's just amazing. And, um, and one of the birds I most wanted to see was the southern cassowary. And so you know what a cassowary is. It's this gigantic bird. Um, male cassowaries would take care of the young. And if you get too close to a male cassowary with eggs or young, it can kill you uh, with these, this gigantic claw that it has on one toe um, on each foot. Um, it's this big, big flightless gi giant bird that has a great big helmet, horny helmet on its head, and bare skin on the face and neck, which is bright blue and 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 purple. It is astonishing bird, and I, I, you know, of all the birds in Australia, this is probably the one I most wanted to see. And there's a place on called Mission Beach on the the coast of of uh, Queensland that <clears throat> that is famous, where supposedly you just drive around the roads there in the early morning, and you could see cassowaries out, you know, feeding along the roadside. You know, coming out of the of the uh, the forest, and I did that. I spent I spent a day driving around Mission Beach and didn't see any, and um, went off elsewhere for some days, and then came back and said, "I'm going to try for cassowaries again." But actually, I then actually walked around inside one of the forest plots. I was listening to a certain kind of dove and trying to figure out how to see this dove, which was way up in the in the trees, and um, and I saw a little movement out of the corner of my eye. I said, oh my Lord, there is a cassowary. And it was about maybe 30, 35 feet away from me, just slowly walking through the forest. And I just stood stock still, very slowly raised my binoculars to be able to, you know, to look at it. And, you know, and otherwise I just didn't move muscle. And um, it just plodded along right in front of me, very slowly, stopped in a little stream to drink or whatever, and then walked off into the forest. And that was, that was one magical experience. Here was a bird that was big enough and capable of killing me. <laughs> Not too many birds could do that. But also, it is like, it's, it's like a bird from another age. It, it really looks prehistoric. If you don't know what a cassowary looks like, C A S S O W A R Y. Look, you know, go 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 Google and look it up. It's fabulous. Um, I let me just tell you two two more experiences, and these are also these are closer to home. One is on the on Saint Lawrence Island in the Bering Sea, uh, you know, so off Alaska. You can you can actually look from Saint Lawrence Island and see mountains in, in Siberia across the way, and it is a place where a lot of birders uh, go in the spring because you can see various kinds of Asian species. You can imagine it's close enough to Russia that you can see Asian species of birds there, but still be within the confines of the United States. So if you want to see a lot of US birds, but they're not really US birds, you go there. And um, so I went there, this is many years ago with a couple of my friends on, on a birding tour. Um, and, and it was absolutely, absolutely marvelous, just incredible. And I'll never forget this one I suppose it was the morning. It's a little hard to tell because it could have been three o'clock in the morning because up at that latitude, it's, it's light most of the time. This was in um, early June. And I remember, I remember the world was entirely gray. I'm standing at the edge of a gray ocean and it was overcast and there were gray clouds and just a little bit of 
mist, you know, over the over the ocean. And as I'm standing there with a couple of other of other people, we see this bird come flying up the beach right along right along the tide line, the uh, the edge of the water. And it was a Ross's gull. A Ross's gull must be one of the most beautiful of birds of, of gulls. It's this you know small kind of gull. Um, with a you know, black ring around its neck and this beautiful, beautiful rosy color on the breast. And, and what I saw was this rose-colored gull against this gray background. And it was simply, it was simply a thing of beauty. Um, but that, that's, that is, that's the aesthetic side of me, okay? And then, and then finally, even closer to home, every once in a while, there's an opportunity to go out on a, a fishing boat, which is basically hired to take out birders instead of fishermen. And, you know, and go out for, you know, 40 or 50 miles offshore to look for seabirds. Um, and you can do this several different times of year and you'll get very, very different birds out there. Um, and this particular, I'm thinking of a trip that was in February one year. And, um, and you might, some of your listeners might be familiar with members of the auk family. Uh, you, you have uh, guillemots in Britain, um, and you have something called the little auk, which in North America is called the dovekey. It's, it's a small seabird, it's black and white, and it's kind of the size of a starling or a little bit smaller. It's quite a small seabird and very seldom seen from shore. You know, if you spend enough time just scanning the ocean from shore you, through the winter, you, if you're lucky, you'll see one or two, but, you're, but by and large, you don't see them from shore. And so most of us here, most of us here in New York don't get to see more than one a year if we're lucky. And, um, but on this boat, we went out and we were out about 40 miles and we started seeing dovekeys. Oh, that's a dovekey. Oh, wow. Oh, oh, there are two. There are two. That's great. Isn't that wonderful? Pretty soon we were seeing flocks of 30 and 40 dovekeys. And pretty soon we were seeing hundreds of dovekeys. And I'll never forget at the same time seeing gigantic fin whales. And one of the images I have in my mind is this, is this picture of a fin whale at the surface, this gigantic whale surrounded by fluttering dovekeys, these little, these little black and white uh, auks um, that were one of our major reasons for going out there. And this is the sort of adventure you can have, you know, birding, which is, you know, it, it's, it's just hard to imagine how, how um, rewarding it is to have that, that unique, that special experience. So I'm done. That's absolutely amazing. Wow, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. I Hopefully for those people who are listening stuck at home, that's quite a nice way for them to escape for a few moments. You can escape, look out your window at birds, you can escape that way. Even, even if you're looking at, well, I know house sparrows are getting more rare in Britain, aren't they? But a house sparrow or a starling or a pigeon or a gull, any one of those, you know, watch it long enough and you'll see it do something interesting where you just see that it's, it's a thing of beauty. Brilliant. I, I, I cannot thank you enough for your time uh, that you've spent talking to me today. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot. I've got a lot to Google. I've made some notes. I think uh, I need to review. I need to review evolution a bit more than I thought I did. Well, I want to thank you, Kobe, very much for inviting me to do this. Um, I, 
you know, I, I, I enjoy teaching, as you know, and since I've retired, I don't get to teach very much. And so, um, and so this is an opportunity for me to talk about, about things that I love, um, things that I find fascinating, the things that have constituted such an important part of my life. And, um, uh, and so I, I hope that at least a few things that I've said are, are interesting to some of your listeners. And I, am, uh, I thank you again for inviting me to have this conversation. hope you found that interesting i certainly learned a lot from that and i hope you did as well watch this space for more extracts from this interview and other interviews goodbye